Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. I'm excited to continue our, our August series today. We've been exploring four different healing stories from the Gospel of Luke. And quite frankly, walking through them and just asking some questions. What does it mean for us to uh, boldly ask for healing, but also faithfully trust in the goodness and the greatness and the good intention of Jesus for us? What does it mean to live in the midst of of some mystery and some tension as to why it is that as we approach the gospel stories, it seems like everyone Jesus touches is healed, and yet today, when we come in faith, it seems like only some are healed. Now, some are really healed, but many aren't. And sometimes the very people we pray for, uh, we cry out for, we can think everything in our minds and our hearts makes sense that, 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 that they would be healed, and yet they aren't or they continue to suffer in some way. And, and how do we live in the midst of that tension? And we've unpacked a lot of that over the last couple of weeks, so I'm not going to repeat everything. Aren't you glad to hear that? That would be about 80 minutes worth by my reckoning. And, and so I do encourage you to go back and listen, because today we might take a little bit of a different approach, and, and uh, I don't want you to think, what? You didn't, you know, uh, I am trying to develop something, recognizing that we're, thanks Amanda, we're hit and miss over over the summer, and so uh, to catch up on on the podcast is really helpful. You can find that at our website, ericksoncovenant.ca, or on um, iTunes as well. Well, I kind of picked as a title uh, for the series, The Gentle Healer Came, which is a, an old Michael Card song. And uh, I had a few friends, uh, well, one of them, my father-in-law, uh, learned this song together, which we sang a couple weeks ago. And today I want to ask if Marvin and Brian would come and join me again. We want to just offer this as the beginning of our of our message today, that the gentle healer comes, and what a difference that makes. So we'll sing this for you. That's yours, Brian. The gentle healer came into our town today. He touched blind eyes and the darkness left to stay. But more than the blindness, he took our sins away. The gentle healer came into our town today. The gentle healer came into our town today. He spoke one word that was all he had to say. And the one who had died just rose up straight away. The gentle healer came into our town today. Oh, he seems like just an ordinary man With dirty feet and rough but gentle hands The words he says are hard to understand And yet he seems like just an ordinary man The gentle healer He left our town today. I just looked around and found he'd gone away. 
Some folks from town had followed him, they say, that the gentle healer is the truth, the life, the way. Thanks. It's a beautiful song. captures a lot of what we're exploring and looking at in this series. Well, today we're going to explore another healing story from Luke. And so we're just going to dive right into the story, see where it takes us. It's found in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. And uh, it is uh, the story that we already heard, uh, you know, previewed here uh, by Dana and the kids. So I appreciate that. That's really, really great. I, I won't ask you to jump around unless I see evidence among you that that would be helpful. <laughs> so it's in Luke chapter 13. Uh, you might have a Bible. You might have a phone. You can look it up on. There might be some Bibles in, in your uh, chairs there. Or just listen along, and we'll go through it. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who'd been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. 18 years. Can you imagine what that was like? 18 years. Some of you are familiar with what it's like to suffer with a long-term chronic illness or some kind of struggle that maybe you've prayed for and you've asked Jesus to heal you or you've wrestled through it or you've tried health remedies or you've done various things, but this struggle continues on and you know what it's like to live a long time in a broken body and to feel like this has become your life. I know that that's true for some of you. And so you can empathize with this woman and what it must have been like for her 18 years to have had this affliction. In the case of the crippling of this woman's body, it's directly attributed to a malignant spiritual power, which Jesus will later, well soon, will name as Satan himself. Now, of course, it's not right to attribute all sickness to spiritual oppression, because often that's often not the case. But Jesus, who knows all things, who knows the hearts and minds of the people that are even in the room, he easily recognizes, when he looks at this woman, he easily recognizes the work of the enemy. And he can't ignore her. She may have thought, when she came to the synagogue, which was a gathering of faithful people, in Jesus' day they gathered to listen to the scripture read, and sometimes interpreted and taught, but they gathered for this. She may have thought she arrived that day unnoticed and, you know, it'd just be another day at the synagogue, but Jesus sees her. And when Jesus saw her, verse 12, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Now this is fascinating to me. As I was looking at this week, I <laughs> notice how the religious leader blames the people for this. And yet it's Jesus who actually initiated the whole thing. If, if you read it, you see that you know, Jesus is there and he's teaching and he sees a woman in need and he calls her forward. Every action taken is this is initiated by Jesus. But the synagogue leader, who's actually upset with Jesus, it's kind of this passive-aggressive thing, he 
blames the people for even, you know, daring to be healed on the Sabbath. Well, this leader's response to what Jesus has done uh, infuriates Jesus. It's a twisted, false view of Sabbath, and it stems from what has become an abusive view of God. And so he just lights them up on the spot. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Now, there's a few things in the story that I think uh, we should explore, be helpful uh, for us uh, before we move to how we apply it. Uh, to our lives. And really, it's talking about Sabbath. I think exploring a bit of what this whole Sabbath thing is would help us uh, because it's the day that it takes place and understanding the conflict and understanding the Sabbath will help us understand what Jesus is doing. When God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he then gave them guidance on how they were to live as newly freed slaves. You see, they've been, they've been in slavery for many years, for generations at that point. And now they've been freed, but they knew nothing, zippo, about actually forming a nation. They didn't know how to, you know, to constitute themselves and how to deal with legal issues and how to deal with conflict and how to structure themselves. They didn't know any of that, let alone what it meant for them to not only be a free people, but to be the people of Yahweh who had rescued them. And so God gave them guidance. God gave them the law. It was given through Moses, and it covered many of the aspects of their life together, from food to economics to women's rights to house mildew. And it covered it. It was, it was for this nation to get on their feet and start living together righteously and holy as a, a way of emulating the character of God in their life together. Now, the Ten Commandments, which is well known to many, form the core of that ancient law. In many ways, all the rest of the law is a working out or an application, kind of case law, as it were, of figuring out how do we apply these Ten Commandments in the various aspects of our life together. And one of the Ten Commandments, you may be aware of this, is, of course, the command to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so every seventh day, which is our Saturday, every Sabbath, the people of God would lay down their tools or their bowls and they would just stop working in order to rest and to remember who they were as God's people. And it's right there in the Big Ten. In the Old Covenant, God's people were told to keep the Sabbath for two reasons. The first reason they were given to keep the Sabbath was because they were the images of God. And as images of God, they're to reflect God to the world in their own weekly rhythm of work and rest. This is found in the first command that was given in the book of Exodus. Right after the people left Egypt, and they show up at the big mountain, and Moses goes up and gets the law and comes down to share it with them. The Big Ten comes, and the reason for the Sabbath keeping, the reason for this command is that God created the world, 
in six days and rested on the seventh day, and now they as his people are supposed to do the same. They're supposed to mimic God's creation work, as it were, his work week, in their work week. And so keeping the Sabbath day holy was a way of emulating or mimicking God, and as a result was a way of reflecting God to the world, which included giving rest to their own family, to their own servants, to their own donkeys, you know, their own land. This rest and this pattern of rest was a way of reflecting God as images of him. It's rooted in the creation story. Um, The second reason they were given was given quite a bit later on. And the second reason is that they are no longer slaves, but that they are a freed people. Now, we find that later on in the fifth book of the Old Testament. And Moses is reiterating the Ten Commandments to a second generation. It's to the kids of the people who'd received the Ten Commandments the first time. That's how the narrative goes. And so he's reiterating it to them. And it's very interesting because this time, when they're told to keep the Sabbath day holy, a different reason's given. It's really the same command, but it has a different reason. It's now, it's now given the reason of remembering and of celebrating their freedom. That they're no longer slaves who, get this, who have to work every day. Who never get a day off. Who suffer under a brutal taskmaster with no options whatsoever. But rather now, they're the freed people of God, and they demonstrate their freedom by doing something absolutely radical, which all of us take for granted, which is, you take a day off. I mean, how, have you, how many of you would start a job where the guy says, the pay is awesome, but you will never get a day off? You'd say, what, are you nuts? I'm, yep. Okay, there, there is that. <laughs> we don't tell them that in advance, though, right? They just, they're just surprised by this reality that... Oh, yes. Okay. And talk about brutal taskmasters, eh? Yes. Thank you, Valerie. We'll run with that. Okay. So, they're, but they're all of a sudden, they're told, look, you can live and demonstrate your freedom by actually taking a day off. Not just a day every once in a while, but like every week you get a day off. Every week you get to have a rest. Every week you get to lay down and sleep in the hammock and just chill, right? Every week. And this rest reminds them, of their freedom. Now, when you bring those two things together, things start to make sense. Sabbath practice is all about God's freed people reflecting his goodness to the world. And God built this into the weekly life of his people so that they wouldn't forget who they were. So they wouldn't forget what he had done for them. They wouldn't forget that they were meant to reflect God to the world. They wouldn't forget that they are freed people because can you finish the statement with me, with no offense to our good friend at the soundboard, but all work and no play makes Jack a what? A dull boy. <laughs> all work and no play. Can I get an amen from Jack? Yes, that's right. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And we recognize that. And in, in what, what we see in Sabbath practice is that dullness, that dullness that sets in when all we do is work, 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 work is you forget who you are and you forget what you're designed to, who you're designed to reflect. People, people of God were images of God and they're freed children. But inevitably, rules don't work. They don't work. This is how the story runs. And over time, Sabbath keeping moved from being a celebration of God's goodness and, and his deliverance. It moved to become an oppressive burden that actually put back people back into slavery. 
And you can see this reflected right here, just in this snippet, but you can see it in your larger story too, reflected right here in the snippet of this synagogue leader. Sabbath! Bah, it is not for healing! I mean, come on! See how twisted it's become for him? It's not for healing! It's not for freedom! You shouldn't be experiencing anything good in the Sabbath! How many of you are raised? Some of you people that were raised in Christian homes, like, okay, you're old people? Oh, I mean, your parents were old a long time ago? Anyway, some of you who are raised in homes that were really, really religious, and, and somehow Sabbath wasn't actually Saturday, it was Sunday, which is another conversation, but, you know, nonetheless, they called it Sabbath, it was really confusing. But some of you have told me that that day, might have been a day of rest, but it was boring, and you could never do anything fun, right? Because the fun had just been sucked out of it. Because it would become religious. It wasn't about celebrating your freedom, it was about... Don't play baseball. Don't whatever. Watch movies. Don't sip soda on the deck because somehow if it was good and if you enjoyed it, it must be from, you know, Satan himself. And so Sabbath had been had completely lost its point <laughs> and its day, I might add. But anyway, uh, I digress. Anyway, so Sabbath keeping had moved to become this bondage and, and it's reflected right here. Sabbath wasn't for healing. It had become a negative, it had become a downer become something all about what you don't do. But Jesus, he came to bring freedom, which is what the Sabbath was always meant to point toward, even though it never achieved it. But it pointed to it. In fact, Jesus had now come as the one toward whom Sabbath pointed. Follow me? Jesus is the fulfillment of Sabbath. So the Sabbath day, that weekly rhythm, it pointed to Jesus himself. He personifies the purpose of Sabbath. He perfectly, as the perfect image of God, he reflects God to the world and God's goodness to the world. He also perfectly represents the freedom that we have as full human beings. Jesus reflected that and then invites us in to share in this reflection and this freedom. It's important to root this, though, in the larger story. And I say larger story in this case, actually just Luke itself. The Gospel of Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third of the Jesus stories in the New Testament. If we root this in the larger story, Jesus in Luke, when he first arrived on the, on the scene to start to heal people and teach about the kingdom of God, it follows immediately upon his baptism and then his temptation in the wilderness. Right after that, baptized, tempted, comes out of that. Right after that, he goes to one of these gatherings, one of these synagogues. He sits down and he reads out his mission statement. His mission statement, what he's all going to be about. Luke relays the story how Jesus reaches for a prophet, a prophet Isaiah, to explain what he's all about. In Luke chapter 4, he sits down and he reads these words from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you hear all the themes in that mission statement? Do you hear all all the stuff, good news to the poor and freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, oppressed free, proclaiming God's favor? It sounds an awful lot like exactly what Jesus does. Through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus doing exactly this. And it wasn't just a nice verse he decided to read at random. Jesus then boldly states, and the people didn't like it, if you read the story, he boldly states, by the way, this prophecy is being fulfilled, has been fulfilled today, in your hearing, right now, in me. Wow. 
Well, what does this mean? Jesus' spirit-anointed mission is to actually bring the good news of freedom to all those who are poor, who are bound, who are oppressed. And that's exactly what he's been doing through his teaching, through his healings, through his friendships, through his relationships. All of them, he's been bringing freedom. Freedom that he will himself pay for. He'll pay the ultimate price for that freedom when he himself is bound to the cross and dumped in a grave. Now, as far as Sabbath goes, Jesus has come now to reveal its true purpose. And so Jesus, you know, whenever he's bringing freedom, there's people who have an investment, right? They have an investment in people not being free. (laughs) There's always someone invested in that. Look around. They're everywhere. And unfortunately, a lot of them come under the title of religious. There's no, no different here. And so whenever Jesus was announcing freedom and demonstrating freedom and bringing freedom, there were people standing around saying, no, this should not be. You're breaking some kind of rule. And so at the same time, he would push back against these religiously oppressive leaders. In this case, pushing back about how religiously oppressive Sabbath keeping had, had become. And he did that all through the story. He did that, like, if you read the, some of the Gospels, particularly Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's like Jesus would, I mean, he didn't do this, but it feels like he waited around all week to intentionally heal someone on the Sabbath. I mean, it's like, well, gee, it's Friday. Let's wait till tomorrow. Because tomorrow it will really tick them off. Like, that's how it felt when you read through the Gospels. I don't know that he actually was doing that, but it felt like that. So, and I'm sure it felt like that to them. This is why the guy said, come on, people, there's six other days of the week. Can you come then? <laughs> Jesus is like, yeah, but I told him to wait. No, no, he didn't say that. <laughs> he didn't say that. All right, so back in Luke chapter 6, there's a very important thing. So you think of how, the, how, the, how Luke is unfolding. You've got the mission statement in Luke 4. And then we have this story in, in, and other stories uh, where there's problems on the Sabbath because Jesus is causing them by healing people in Luke 13. But in Luke chapter 6, we've already had a big deal made about Jesus being actually not just messing with Sabbath because he's another prophet who likes to mess things around, but Jesus actually says something very powerful in, in Luke chapter 6. He says, actually, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Like, I'm the one in charge of Sabbath. I'm the one who redefines or defines or tells you what Sabbath is all about. I have the power and authority over your religious day. And I can tell you what it's all about. Sabbath, Jesus demonstrates, is no longer about what you can't do. It's now about what God is doing. Sabbath now is meant to be about freedom from slavery, not a return to the slavery of religion. And that's why we say Sabbath as a day points toward Jesus who has come. And so that's kind of the backdrop to what Jesus is doing here today. So when we see what he does, we recognize that these gathered people experience true Sabbath in the person of Jesus, through the ministry of Jesus, because he brings freedom so they can be the images of God. And why? Why is Sabbath now defined by the Lord of the Sabbath all about freedom? Well, it brings us full circle. That God the Father had sent Jesus to do just that, to proclaim this good news of freedom, to actually set people free from whatever it was that was holding them down. Because Sabbath's no longer what you can't do. It's now about what God is doing to bring freedom to people. Now, if you listen for it, 
you'll see how Jesus is always doing this. He's always pushing back against oppressive religion. And here, in this particular story, he uses this lesser, greater argument. It's very popular. Jesus uses it all the time. It's popular in his day. He basically says, you hypocrites. You treat your animals better than you treat people. I mean, when you go home from the synagogue today and your animal's standing in the hot sun and needs a drink of water, what are you going to do? No kidding. You're going to untie it and you're going to give it a drink. He's saying, you're willing to do that for your animal, but you're not willing to let God do that for a person who, as Jesus interprets, has been bound by Satan himself for 18 years. I mean, this is extreme. This doesn't make any sense. Your religion doesn't make any sense. Your religion is doing more to prevent people from being seen and prohibiting people from being freed. And that's not what I'm all about. Jesus had come to see people and to free people. And Sabbath, which was a gift from God to slaves who never got a day off, had now become twisted into a crushing burden rather than a wonderful gift. But Jesus came to shut down religion. Call it off. It ain't working. We're going to start new. We're going to start fresh. He came to open people up to the heart of God so they can fully receive all that he has for them, all that he intended for them, and all that Jesus himself was going to do for them so that as they continue to live in the midst of brokenness, they can know that death has been defeated. Healing will come. Resurrection is sure. So the Sabbath in the New Covenant, then, established by Jesus, isn't about a restrictive day. It's not about a day where you can't do something. In fact, it's not no longer about a particular day at all. Sabbath, under the New Covenant in Christ, it's about living with a rhythm of celebration that, that where we can experience the Spirit's joy in our work and in our rest. A time where we remember and reflect who we are to the world, who Christ is has made us to be as freed children of the Father, as emancipated slaves who are no longer chained up, but now live with full freedom. Now, I think there's some really practical ways we can incorporate that into our lives. And I really do believe that those of us who are addicted to work, who work, 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 you will get dull. You will. You'll forget who you are. And so the principle of Sabbath needs to be incorporated into our lives, but not as a rule something that is gifted to us. It's a celebration so we don't forget who we are and we don't fail to reflect God's goodness to the world. All this on Sabbath helps us hear the story because it's on this particular day of freedom that we witness Jesus' heart for this woman who's been bound, who's been crippled all these, uh, all these 18 years. And what, what struck me in this story as I, I heard it and reflected on it and prayed through it was was that line that he sees her. This is what struck me all week, and actually the last number of weeks, was that he sees her. There's something about it. He, he, he's there, and he's doing his thing, and everybody's doing their thing, but he sees her. And then he frees her on a very, the very day that's designed to point everyone toward their status as images of God and freed children of the Father. But the fact that he sees her is so significant. Because, you know, when you are suffering... When people are experiencing great difficulty in their lives, emotional, physical, relational, across the board, any kind of hurt at all, you can feel invisible. Right? You can feel like no one sees you. And there's two ways that that happens. One is that it's something hidden. Like you actually have a physical ailment that isn't obvious. You're not limping, as it were. You're not crippled like this woman. You're, you're, you're carrying an illness or a struggle in your body that people aren't aware of. In fact, 
um, sometimes it can feel insensitive because people don't see it. And so then as a result, they react in certain ways or they interpret uh, your actions or your or your, um, your, you know, your no or whatever in, in, in certain ways because they don't see it. And so you can feel like you're carrying something that's unseen. Those of us who've carried a struggle with, with mental illness have felt sometimes like it's, a, it's an invisible thing. It's something that isn't obvious. And, and so as a result, uh, people can feel unseen, like no one really sees me. And the fact that Jesus sees her is significant, sees us is significant. But the other thing is interesting is even if we do carry some kind of struggle that's obvious to everyone, they can see the limp, they can see the wound. We can then feel invisible because we can begin to feel like that's all people see. Like when they look at me, all they see is the fact that I'm missing a leg. Or that I've got a terrible wound, as it were. In my relationship, all they can hear, all they can see. And so as a result, I get I get to be or I become defined by that. And so in that sense, we can begin to feel invisible, like they're no longer seeing me anymore. They only see my problem. And so while there are obviously uh, well-meaning friends, it can feel after a while like I I don't want to just talk about how bad I'm doing. I don't want to just talk about how things are are going. I actually want to kind of go off and do something else where I'm not having to focus on that. So we can feel invisible when we struggle uh, with something chronic, something long-term, something significant. We can feel like we are unseen. And so when I prayed through this story this week, what I felt like the Holy Spirit was urging me to share with you today is this, quite simply, that Jesus sees you. That He really sees you. He sees what's going on in your life. He sees what's going on in your family. He sees what, what burden or struggle you're experiencing. He really sees you. He, he knows exactly what's happening. And his desire is to bring freedom to you. In fact, it's exactly why he came. And so do you feel unseen? That, that, that's, that's one of my questions for you today. Do you feel unseen in some way? Is there something in your life that feels unseen, not acknowledged, not known? Or conversely, are there people around you that you begin to think, yeah, they feel unseen? There's people that are missing, maybe. People that you suddenly realize, I haven't seen them for a long time. And they've sort of slipped off the radar. And so they have become at least unseen to you. Who around you feels unseen? Jesus sees us. And when he sees us, he offers us freedom. This is really true. This is true and consistent, not just in this story, as we see it point toward all that Jesus is doing for her and for us, but, but the whole story of the whole good news of Jesus coming is that he's come because he loves us. He sees us. He knows what struggle and what difficulty we're having, and he has come to bring us freedom at the expense of his own freedom, at the expense of his own life. That Jesus has truly emancipated us through his death on the cross, and he's brought freedom to us through the gift of his Holy Spirit. That freedom really is ours. And that's what I want to point us toward this week. I, I recognize that we, um, 
we've been talking a lot the last couple of weeks about how in that space where we recognize that like I, I need freedom, there's a particular struggle, there's a physical need, or there's a relational need, or there's something broken I need fixed, and we come and we ask Jesus to bring freedom and to, to bring healing, and, and that there's tension in how that all happens. But what I'm absolutely convinced of by looking at this story and the whole of the gospel stories is that Jesus has come to accomplish our freedom. And he's done that by entering into our space and into our brokenness, by seeing us and freeing us and then giving us the gift of His Holy Spirit to walk with us in the midst of both uh, personal uh, you know, triumph and victory as well as sufferings that continue longer than we would like. I alluded in my email this week, and I've been probably every message so far, I've continually been coming back to Romans 8. Uh, this is one of the letters that Paul wrote, and it's, it's really awesome. And uh, in, in, in halfway through Uh, Romans 8, we hear these words, which to me signal for us the kind of freedom that we experience even in the midst of, of struggle. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received, he's referring back to when these people had come to faith in Christ and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And the word sonship is a special word that applies to sons and daughters. But it's having full rights and authority as an adopted child of a father. Sonship. And by him, by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That last line reminds us that we live in this overlap that we talked about last week, where we experience the freedom that the Holy Spirit brings so that we are truly kids of God and not slaves but we do so in a place where we are still sharing in the sufferings of Christ and in the glory that is to come. And we experience some of that today, but not all. But the Holy Spirit has come to make us free, even in the midst of that. And so I want to offer you a kind of a take-home exercise, a very practical take-home exercise for application this week that has to do with being uh, seen, and then we'll close. And you may want to write this down, because I'm going to give you a little bit of instruction But uh, I want to invite you to do an exercise that I have found very meaningful. I've done it a number of times. It's an exercise in your imagination. It's using your imagination to see yourself. So you've got to be the third person in the story. Okay? So you're in your mind's eye, you imagine yourself sitting on a bench or in a park or on the grass somewhere. And then you imagine... Jesus sitting with you. Okay? So in your mind's eye, you're imagining, you're looking at yourself and Jesus sitting on a park bench, down by the river, somewhere nice. Okay? And then what you're doing is you're actually looking at Jesus in your mind's eye. You're seeing how Jesus is looking at you. You're seeing Jesus 
seeing you or watching Jesus watching you. Now, that sounds a little strange. You've got to run with me on this, okay? It's a powerful exercise. And here's what you do. You quiet yourself. You get a few moments. You hire some babysitter to take care of your kids. You do whatever it takes to get a few moments of quiet. And you quiet yourself. Um, go, go out in the yard or go to the bedroom. Whatever you need to do to, to get quiet space. You get, get kind of quiet, kind of calm. And then, in your mind's eye, see Jesus and you sitting on a park bench, let's say, and just take three to five minutes and simply look at Jesus who's looking at you. And really focus. Notice his eyes. Notice his posture. Notice his facial expression. And you're going to, some of you are going to say, yeah, but I'm just imagining it. Exactly. And God gave you a brain, and he gave you imagination, and it's a beautiful thing to do it with. Because you could have been just scrolling through, you know, Facebook, which is not a good way to use your imagination. So there's a lot of things we could do with our imagination, good and bad. This is a beautiful thing to do with your imagination that God gave you. And so you imagine this and you, you describe in your mind, you look, you watch, you watch, you watch, you see Jesus who's looking at you. And then at about the five minute mark, when you feel like this is wrapping up, I've now watched Jesus watch me, then... You take a sheet of paper and you write a letter in the voice of Jesus to you. So you actually hear, you know, you can literally start the letter, Dear Tom, Dear Mimi, Dear Bill, if you're Bill and if you're Mimi. You start the letter addressing you and then you write it out of your experience of watching Jesus watch you, out of your experience of seeing Jesus see you, you write what Jesus is now saying to you. Write it. Let the Holy Spirit speak through you to you. Write out, what is Jesus saying to you? I'm going to tell you, a couple times I've done this, this has been quite a powerful experience. Uh, Surprisingly so, actually. Throw yourself into it and see how Jesus speaks to you as he sees you, as he sees those hidden parts of you. And, and wrestle with what he says. Wrestle with what comes out of that. And Maybe you'll have an opportunity as you've done that and you write a letter uh, to yourself from Jesus. There might be things that emerge out of that that you want to share with a friend. Do you want to talk to a counselor about? Do you want to meet with uh, Dana or I and discuss it? But there... there there is something powerful about knowing that you are seen by Jesus and then hearing him speak to you out of that. And so I challenge you, every single one of you, even if you aren't yet a committed follower of Jesus, to try this out. Give me 10 minutes of your time this week, folks. Try it out. Let me know how it goes. But see Jesus seeing you. So that's the first take home. The second take home is that perhaps a little simpler. It doesn't involve the same imaginative exercise. And that is this. The reality is there are people all around us in our work, in our lives, who feel unseen. And because they feel unseen, they often are unseen. And so what I invite you to do is to pray a simple prayer when you leave your door this week, or before you pick up the phone this week, or maybe when you sit down to look at email or Facebook, and you ask yourself, Holy Spirit, or you ask the Holy Spirit, rather, to reveal to you, is there someone who feels unseen around me? And how, Holy Spirit, would you like me to help them discover that they have been seen by you? 
what would that look like? A note, a card, a meal, a, a coffee, a call. What would it look like? But ask the Holy Spirit to help you see the people around you who feel unseen and be, as it were, someone who comes into their lives and reflects to them the fact that they have been seen by Jesus and he desires their freedom. Two practical things I challenge you to do to take this message today and apply it. Listen, next week I'm going to do my best to keep my message quite short. (laughs) You can pray for me. But I, and we're having communion as well, but I want to take some time next week deliberately to take questions about healing, about things that have been raised. And so I I throw this out to you to say that if you have questions, uh, to think about them, to pray, pray about that, reflect on what are my questions about healing, about living in the tension there about coming boldly to ask Jesus for healing, but also entrusting ourselves to him and his good intentions. And, and so living in the midst of that mystery and that tension. And so I want to offer uh, some response next week to questions you might have. And so come with, with some prepared, if you'd like. Listen, Jesus sees us. He sees you. And in that seeing, there is freedom. Because he not only desires you to experience the freedom as a son and a daughter of God, of knowing that his Holy Spirit has been given to us so we can live as freed children, not as slaves. He wants us to experience that now. But he also wants us to hold on with confidence to the fact that our freedom has been fully accomplished by him. His good intention is to bring us into greater amounts of freedom in our own personal lives, but then into ultimate freedom in the resurrection. I love that. Because in the midst of struggle and tension, in the midst of death and grief, to know that our freedom has been accomplished by Jesus gives us the power to reflect that to the world and to live that freedom as his children. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to say, first of all, that I just I want to say how awesome you are. That you see broken people and your heart just leaps to bring freedom, to bring restoration to broken people. And we know that that is your heart and your desire and your will. And I just want to praise you for that because you're incredible. We stand in awe of how incredibly awesome you are. Jesus, would we catch a vision for that? I pray specifically that we would see you seeing us this week that we would catch a glimpse of the way you look at us with such desire and such hope and such love. And that that would bring freedom to us, releasing us from fear and moving us into a fuller experience of your Spirit's power in our lives. As a community, as a church, the Erickson Covenant Church, Lord Jesus, I ask that we would be a people who really reflect your freedom to the world around us. We celebrate that and we live that as followers of you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for living on us, for bringing freedom to us so we can live fearless in a world that is so filled with fear. We give you grace. Uh, would, Would you give us your grace and we give you all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time 
or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.